0: We are looking at Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. If you are at home in the cool of your house, I don't know the page number, but I also encourage you to get a Bible out and to work through this passage with us as we will be jumping to other parts of Ephesians and we will be spending a lot of time in the text. So if you're in the pews, page 828 and at home, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. Let me read the passage. one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took, up, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly reasons? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in an order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave Himself, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature as each part does its work. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promise, Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to His praise and glory. And I'm actually going to stop at that point. So let me ask you the question, how mature How mature are you? If you do an assessment of yourself and answer the question, how mature are you? How grown up are you? How non-infantile are you? When I finished high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And before I went on to do further study, I had a number of odd jobs Uh, which frustrated my appearance. My favorite one was actually working in a factory, basically making widgets from midnight to 8 a.m. And at 8 a.m., I would head to the beach with my surfboard, surf for the morning surf, go home, sleep, repeat. Work, surf, sleep. Work, surf, sleep. I thought it was awesome. I loved it. I was living in the moment. Life seemed really good. Now, my parents were not as excited about that as and about the choices I was making. They were concerned that I would never become independent and self-sufficient, that I would never amount to anything. They would push me to do something with my life. And the conversations started nicely, but they devolved quickly. I heard them say words like, don't be infantile, you need to grow up. We can't wait forever for you to mature. And I would usually say something smart like, I've heard that maturity is greatly overrated. So for me, the world I grew up in, maturity was something of an anathema. My parents were constantly frustrated at my immaturity and meaning my lack of accomplishment and self-sufficiency. And I wondered, what was the big deal about being mature? It sounded rather boring, and it certainly sounded hard and difficult and repetitive. If only we as a family had studied and understood, had read and meditated on the book of Ephesians. Paul explains what and how of maturity. He explains the what and the how of maturity. What is maturity? Hint, it's not what your parents, or at least what my parents said it was. And he also talks about how we become mature. So we're going to look at these two things. What is maturity and how do we become mature? let's start with what maturity is not. So what is maturity? Let's start with what it's not. It is not being accomplished and self-sufficient. This is a worldly, materialistic view of what it means to be mature. It is not a spiritual view of maturity. Let's look at what Paul says, or rather what the Holy Spirit says through Paul. In verse 13, in the second part of verse 13, we we see the words, We grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is, we grow to become, uh, that is, Christ. So to become mature means attaining the full measure of Christ. Now, that's a big sentence, isn't it? The full measure of Christ. What does it mean to attain the full measure of Christ? What does that look like? Well, luckily at the beginning of verse 13, we actually see what that is until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, effectively becoming mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the fullness, uh, the, the, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, becoming mature means reaching unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. It's a strange definition. And the idea of unity, in fact, bookends this passage. It's in verse three. And it's in verse 13. But they're not the same unity. And it's really important to understand that. In verse 3, we see this idea of unity of the Spirit. Let me read that to you. So if you go to verse 3, you'll see, make every effort to keep the unity of the, of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, the unity of the Spirit is a reality. It's a theological reality. It's a truth. We may not see it because we don't have the spiritual eyes to see it, but in the created order, the unity of the Spirit is already present. There's no question about it. It's not arguable. It's not sometimes there and sometimes not there. The unity of the Holy Spirit, Paul, in fact, goes on to spell out in verse 4. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He was over all. And through all. And when he talks about the unity of the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about special measures of Holy Spirit power or charismatic gifts. He's really talking simply about the Holy Spirit deposited into all of us when we become believers. And you can see this when you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, as we started to look at this letter, where it says in verses 13 and 14, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed and you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, whose deposit guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, to simplify that, hear, believe, believe receive, hear, believe, receive. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in your heart, and you are by definition unified to every other Christian. It's a reality. If we're Christians, we're unified in the Holy Spirit. We are brothers and sisters. Here's a test for you. Who do I have more in common with? My white, English-speaking, Western male neighbor who's living in the United States but is not a Christian? or an uneducated, nomadic, Gujari woman who only speaks Jordi and lives in North Pakistan who is a Christian? Now, what would you think? What would you think? Of course you would think it's a neighbor, but the truth is, the spiritual truth is, if you are a Christian, you have more in common with another Christian than with anyone else. We have the unity of the Holy Spirit. This is a given reality. And here is the maturity question. For us, Do I believe this? Do I live this? Do you believe this? Do you live this? And what would believing it look like? What would living it look like? It would mean both myself and the Gujarat woman were consumed with the mission of the church, with the reality and what is in reality the mission of God, what's well, really the mission of God. And, and it's why Paul's writing this letter, because he's trying to get us all to come together in unity to live out the mission of the church together. And he, he spells this out in Ephesians 1, back at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse the second half of verse 8 through 10. And we went through this when we looked at uh, this passage. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment to bring unity to all things, in heaven and on earth." And this is astounding. It's really astounding when you think about it, because what's really being said here is that from God's perspective, we, the church, are the center of the universe, the reactive ingredient in the world, the agent of change. Certainly that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he uses us. God is not out there like some watchmaker Creating, winding up and letting unwind. He's not some sort of distant uh, God who pokes occasionally at different things to see what would happen. He is, he is in here doing things through his church and he's out there doing things through his church. It is through the church that God declares to the world what he is doing in the world. It is through the church that God declares what he is doing in the world. And what is God doing? He's uniting the world under his authority, under the authority of Christ. Sin is dividing. God is uniting. And we see here in verse 3, that first unity, that unity which is a theological truth, that unity of the Holy Spirit that, God, that Paul says, make every effort, Now, that's a poor translation of that word. One commentator actually translated it as have a blazing zeal. So we could read that passage as have a blazing zeal to stay united as a church as we declare to the world what God is doing. So this is an interesting definition of maturity isn't it doesn't really fit what our parents have told us to be mature is to have a blazing zeal to stay united as a church as we declare to the world what god is doing it's not your parents definition of maturity but it is god's definition of maturity having a blazing zeal a blazing zeal to stay united as we declare to the world what god is doing so then the question of course becomes well how do we come people who have a blazing zeal to stay united in declaring to the world what God is doing. How do we make this a reality? How do we make this unity of the Holy Spirit a reality? Now, this unity of faith, which is the outworked unity that Paul is asking us to strive for, It's when we take the unity of the Holy Spirit, which is a theological reality, and we mature. This unity of faith in verse 13 requires two things which rub us the wrong way. Two things which are hard as human beings to accept. They are humility and submission. Humility and submission. So maturity, this idea of having a blazing zeal to stay unified while we live out uh, the, or declare God's purposes for this world requires humility and submission. Now, I'm not talking about the humility which any polite person has. I'm not talking about the sort of person who isn't braggadocious, who has enough emotional intelligence not to tell you how great he thinks or she thinks she is. I'm not talking about that polite cultural humility here. We're talking about biblical humility, which means knowing something very different. It means knowing two realities. It means knowing that we are interdependent, not independent, and that everything we are is because of Christ. So that's true humility. True humility is not knowing not to tell everyone how great you are. True humility is grounding, being grounded in the truth that we are interdependent, not independent, and that everything we are is because of Christ. Now, you might ask the question, why is this even an issue? Why do Christians <coughs> excuse me, have a problem with humility or moving towards maturity? And it's answered answer for us in verse 7. We see here, But to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So we've got this picture of unity because of the Holy Spirit. And we've got this mission that we are supposed to achieve because and through this unity and god has said you all have different pieces and different roles and i'm going to gift you differently i'm going to give you different graces i'm going to apportion those gifts differently so grace has been apportioned as christ apportioned it and christ gifts us each uniquely to do our own work of the church and when you have a particular grace or gift It's quite normal, it's sinful, but it's quite normal to think you're special. You're worthy, or we're worthy, we think we are worthy because of our gifts. We're valuable because of our gifts. We have meaning because of our gifts. Now, sometimes that means we use our gifting to build up our own personal kingdoms. We don't even ask the questions. We don't sit in, in prayer. We don't get on our knees. We don't question our heart's affections. We don't sit there saying, God, how do I build up the body with these gifts? How do I build your kingdom with these gifts? What are the good gifts? What are the good works? These gifts you have given me are to be used for. We don't sit in that posture before God, asking and praying for him to guide us to the things he has called us. 4. We are so detached from this idea that we have a calling, that our job is to build up the church, that we are, through whatever we do, in here, out there, to be declaring God's purpose in the world, that we go on and build our own kingdoms. Our humility doesn't even come into the picture. Other times, we do. We work within the church, but we still make it all about us. All about us. This church would fall apart without me. Now, the most dangerous thing for those in ministry, and when I say ministry, I want you to think of that term broadly, because whether you're standing here in the pulpit, whether you're in worship leading, whether you're out there as a teacher or a lawyer, as a policeman, whatever you do, that's your ministry. It's very easy, the most dangerous thing, probably for a Christian, is for their ministry to be successful. I don't know how many of you have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Now, that is about Pastor Mark Driscoll's deterioration and then the destruction of the church because of that. Now, Mark Driscoll was very obviously and is very obviously a Christian. One of the passages in uh, one of the podcasts in the middle of that, they compare Mark Driscoll to Tim Keller. They say, what's the difference here? Here are two greatly gifted men, two preachers that people flocked to hear. One of them went off the rails. One of them started to believe his own publicity. One of them started to think the church couldn't survive without him, that the church had to be built around him. The other one has built a successful ministry that has thrived, has planted churches all over the place, has not tried to be controlling, and has made a big difference in the kingdom of God. One imploded, one continues to flourish. The conclusion that the podcast came to was that Mark Driscoll was too young and too immature. Paul, uh, Tim Keller had true Christian maturity and was able to push off the temptation of success. Success is often the most dangerous thing for us in any area of life because we start to equate our success as being the most important thing. Now, I don't want you, if you go and listen to that podcast or even listening to me tell that story, I don't want you to think, hear that voyeuristically. Oh, who is that terrible Mark Driscoll? Oh, we need to worship Tim Keller. I want you to listen to that instructively. Think about your own successes and how they distract you. Think about the things which work and how you start to forget God in them. What would you and what won't you do to be successful in ministry or whatever you do? What are you willing to do and what are you not willing to do to be successful? And what is your primary goal in ministry? And by ministry, I mean that in the broadest sense, in the way you parent, in the way you work, in the way you do whatever you do, inside or outside the church. What is your primary goal? Is it to be faithful? or is it to be successful? Is it faithful or success? Is it faithful to be successful, or is it successful to be faithful? How do you wrap that up in your thinking? What do you strive for? What are you willing to compromise to be successful? What are you willing to give up to be faithful? In both cases, whether it's outside the church building up your own kingdom, or effectively inside the church building up your own kingdom as a Christian, and I mean that in the broad sense of the church. In both cases, when you move into this place of hubris, this place where we forget our giftings, our graces, given in authority with purpose by Christ, verses 7 to 11. In both cases, the problem is we've lost our humility. We've forgotten that our giftings, our graces, that are given in authority with purpose by Christ. started to use those gifts to self-define or to build their own kingdoms. Now let's be honest. I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to do a little thought exercise with me. Assess who you are. Think about how your education has led to that. What you received from your family of origin. And ask this question. How would life be different for you if you were a nomadic Gujar woman living in North Pakistan? How much of what you are today and who you are and how you live and what successes you have, how much are due to circumstances beyond your control? Not beyond God's control, but beyond your control. And I hear some of you saying, you know what, that's not fair. I have a great work ethic. I have a willingness to make sacrifices to be successful. I'm willing to delay gratification in order to meet my goals. I have high levels of motivation which have driven me forward. Let me ask you this question then. Where did these temperamental characteristics come from as well? They came from God. Everything we are, everything we are, everything which is good and whole and complete comes from God. And so our humility has to drive us to see that. And we stop sitting in judgment of other people or judgment of ourselves. We sit in contentment, both with ourselves and with others, because we realize that what we are are graces given as Christ has apportioned them to us. It is better to say, not I'm special, but we're all special. We're all gifted by God, and the church doesn't function when any one of us, any one of us, lacks a zeal to stay united as a church as we declare to the world what God is doing. Let me say that again. The whole church is not doing what it's supposed to do when any one of us lacks that blazing zeal to stay united as a church as we declare to the world what God is doing. So true humility knows these two things. Everything we are is because of God. And we are interdependent, not independent. Now, because of that, Christ set up the church in a certain way. He created a human architecture in the church. And through this, in verse 11, we start to see an authority at work. We start to see him giving authority to certain people with responsibility to build up the church. Let me read you those verses, uh, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So, Christ, in his authority, commissions leaders for the church. Now, if you're a leader, if you are a leader in the church, you are to submit to the role of edifying the body. And there's a lot of work in that. We have workers who have to ask themselves, What does it mean to prepare uh, for worship on Sunday? We have elders who have to ask themselves the question, What does it mean? to engage in the oversight of the church? Am I committed to praying for those that I've been charged with praying for? Do I, am I engaged enough in the lives of the congregation so that I know what's going on? If you are a music leader, you have to do the preparation. Select the songs. Be prepared when you stand up front. We have youth leaders. We have hospitality leaders. All of those things require you to submit in authority to Christ to ask, what does it mean to do this faithfully? But there's another question too. Each of us, assuming that there are so many leaders, and I I do not lead worship, I do not uh, lead music, thank goodness, I do not lead youth, uh, uh, the, the youth group, I'm not in the hospitality team, so I am under the leadership of many people in this church. There are lots of leaders at North Point, pastors, elders, Deacons, youth group leaders, worship leaders, hospitality leaders. Each of us then submits to Christ's call to build up the body as we are called. But by definition, we're also called to submit to being built up. Let me say that again. We're submitted, we're, we're called to submit to being edified, to being built up. That's on us. Now it can be abused if I was to say to you, I'm the pastor of this church. Go get me a cup of coffee. I hope you would turn around and say to me, in fact, I really, really hope you would, because I would need to hear it. Go get your own cup of coffee. I'm a congregant, not a domestic servant of the church. Right? So I'm not saying that I have the right as pastor or deacon or elder or worship. We don't have the right to abuse that authority. That authority is specific. But by the same token, you cannot sit in the pews passively and expect to be edified. Let me ask you this. Where is your heart in worship, being edified or criticizing song choice, singer's pitch, drummer's rhythm? Where is your heart in preaching? Are you listening to be affirmed and convicted, or are you an intellectual critic of what is said and why it's said and how it's said? Recently, I went out with Johan after he preached here for the first time, and he asked me because he wanted some feedback. He didn't ask me before the sermon to give him feedback. So he came to me after he preached and said, what feedback can you give him? And I explained to him the things that I had got out of the sermon, how I had been convicted and challenged by service. He says, no, 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 I don't want to know that. I want to know technically how well I preached. And I. I had to say to him, I don't know, because I wasn't listening for those reasons. I don't want want to sit in the pew and be a judge or a critic. I want to sit in the pew and be edified. I want to hear the word of God and be convicted and challenged. Are you listening to be affirmed or convicted, or are you an intellectual critic? And where's your heart when it comes to the diaconate? Are you willing to be vulnerable and reach out when you have a need? That's harder than you think, isn't it? It's harder to say, I have need, I have real need. Can you please help me? Where is your heart when it comes to pastoral care? When you're struggling spiritually, do you reach out to the pastors and elders? Part of submission is choosing in maturity to find the path of being edified. Now, some of you do these things. I love the fact that some of you who are struggling in marriages come to us. Some of you are struggling because things are going well in your job, come to us or your small groups. Some of you who have COVID or other illnesses come and ask for prayer. Some of you need help putting in or taking out air conditioners, and you ask for help. And the irony here, the real irony here, is that those people who are vulnerable, those people who recognize their interdependence, those people are the mature ones, not the ones who think they can hold it all together, it's the ones who are vulnerable, who recognize their independence, who in humility realize we all have different ways we can give and contribute to each other. So let me ask the question again. How mature are you? How mature are you? And remember, maturity means having a blazing zeal, a blazing zeal to stay united as a church as we declare to the world what God is doing. So this means equipping Becoming equipped and engaging. Now, Tom uh, not Tom. Um, John Stott has this saying. He said that so many Christians in the Western world and I think this is probably North Point's biggest problem so many Christians in, in the Western world are tadpoles. And what does he mean by tadpoles? It means they're all head. There's nothing more to them except for a head. And there's an antidote to this big intellectual head knowledge about Christianity. It's when you feel that you're missing heart, that a a heart learning or a hand serving, there's a tadpole antidote. And that is, in very simplistic terms, is to add heart learning and hand serving. It's not that hard, is it? I mean, of course it's hard, but it's not that complicated, is it? So... If you're feeling stale in your faith, it could be that you're not maturing, that you're not maturing in a Christian way, that you're not growing up in the faith, that we, as a church in the West, are consumed with success rather than faithfulness. And you're bought into that. So why aren't you learning? That's the question to ask. Why aren't you, in your heart, learning? The first question to ask is, do you really want to be edified and build up. Is that what you really want? Or do you want to come here and sit in judgment on different things, or any other church? Do you lack humility? If that's the case, if that's what's driving your lack of desire to be edified, if you lack humility, remind yourself that you're only what Christ has made you. You have a critical heart. Now, I know what it's like. I have critical hearts too. Every now and again, I see something in the church and I thought, oh my gosh, why can't that person get there on time? Why did they pick that song in that place? Uh, Whatever whatever it is, and then a, a bird lands on my head. A critical spirit comes in. And then I have a choice at that point. I can shoo it away. Or I can let it build a nest. I can let that critical spirit build up and make it so that My opinion and my thoughts and my feelings are the most important thing. Or I can shoot away and choose to be edified. I'm not saying that we don't need to run correctives on things. But I'm saying, where is our heart? Are we committed to being people of worship? Are we committed to being edified? So if you aren't learning, ask yourself if you really want to be edified and built up. Do you lack humility? Do you have a critical heart? And there's things you can do about that in prayer, in submission. If you're not serving, do you really want to serve the kingdom of God? Ask yourself that question. Do you really want to serve the kingdom of God? Or is it more important to you to build up your own kingdom? And if that's the case, remind yourself in prayer, in submission, remind yourself that you have been gifted for and called to specific good works. Not to build up your own kingdom, but to build up the church in here and out there. Let me ask you this question. Are you using your gifts to self-define or are you looking to be led by Christ? Are you in prayer asking the question, how do I build up the body with these gifts? How do I build up God's kingdom with my gifts? What good works are my gifts to be used for? Is that your posture in prayer? Is that your posture in life? Is that the burning question? Is that the blazing zeal that drives what you do that's the question isn't it do you have a blazing zeal to stay united as a church as we declare to the world what god is doing so again let me ask the question are you mature and let me ask you this to conclude what does this mean when you hear me say are you mature how mature are you you go to a place of head knowledge, intellectualize that question? Or do you hear that with conviction? And do you ask yourself, I need to become a man or a woman with more humility, with more submission in my life? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, you teach us that maturity is about humility, which is about realizing that everything comes from you and that we are interdependent and that it is about submission that it is about submitting to being edified that we have to take an active role in prayer pursuing you looking to be edified father i pray father that you give us hearts that desire to be mature as you define it that you give us Opportunities to serve and grow, that you show us what you have given us your gifts for, that you draw us to those things, that we look for how our gifts are to be used. Father, help us to be people not just of head knowledge, but of heart learning and hand service. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at Ephesians 4.